This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is more than likely someone you haven't heard of before, but I can tell you that after this show, he will be known. His name is Anthony Sanchez. Let me tell you how this interview came to be. Today, I was speaking with Norio Hayakawa, a veteran Veritas guest and researcher of topics like Area 51 and the Dulce Underground Facility. I was telling Norio that I was getting a bit tired of the recycled UFO material and wanted to find new information from reputable sources. He said, Mel, I hear you. I go through that all the time. However, he said, I know someone who may be the right person to talk to right about now. All of a sudden, he pointed me to Anthony Sanchez and his website, ufohighway.com. I started browsing the website, and all of a sudden, 
I realized that this is exactly what I was looking for. New information from reputable sources. To make a long story short, I told Norio that I wanted to get in touch with Anthony. He mediated, arranged it, and Anthony got in touch with me. I then found out that Anthony has received death threats if he publishes this material. That's when I thought the more public he becomes, the better. Since he hasn't been on any show before, I offered him an interview this evening, on the spot. What you are about to hear, I don't think you have ever heard before. Perhaps bits and pieces, separately, but not the whole picture. Anthony's book, UFO Highway, will be coming out in December. But this is a great start, so you know what he and his research are all about. And this just came in. I have a bonus audio at the end of the show for you. I contacted Anthony Sanchez to ask how his trip to New Mexico went. Well, to say it was adventurous would be an understatement. He wrote to me and summarized what happened, but instead I asked him to narrate the event so that you could listen. In summary, first, as he was having breakfast with Norio Hayakawa, a brand new black truck parked outside the eating establishment, a man stepped out of the car and started photographing their vehicles. Then he started photographing Norio and Anthony. Needless to say, they decided to leave. Then at the Angel Fire Conference, a man approached Anthony and invited him to ride with them to a public access television studio. The problem is, there is no public access TV in Angel Fire. The man was confronted and escorted out. More details in the audio. And then during one evening at the hotel bar, while he was having cocktails with other researchers, a woman approached them and started taking pictures of his riding pad. Then he tried to approach her and she bolted. I'll let Anthony narrate the story for you at the end of this show. Bear in mind, our interview was recorded a few days before this event took place. But you have to listen to the entire show to get a better perspective. I want to thank Norio Hayakawa for making this happen. Anthony Sanchez will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows, a few bonus interviews, the Veritas private chat room, and the Magicor forum. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. And are you still looking for Jim Humble's MMS and cannot find it? Look nowhere else. Go to our website and click on the MMS link. You can buy it there, whether you are in the United States or abroad. And don't forget, we are still selling the 8GB brushed metal case USB drive containing all of Season 1 and a lot of bonus material. To find out, go to the website veritasshow.com and click on the Veritas store. Simply just plug the USB drive on your computer and you don't have to download anything. It will be all right there for you. You will see how we filled this futuristic device to the limit. And if you need to get in touch with me, go to our website and click on the contact button or on Facebook. And now, get ready for a download of new information you have never heard before until now. It is not often that we bump into information that will create a mental paradigm shift. Find out 
but a retired Air Force colonel knows about the Dulce underground facility, our human origins, the Greys, Harp and Project Blue Beam's connection, and much more. If you want to continue being part of the Illusion game, stop this audio now. If you are ready for the truth, don't go anywhere. Anthony Sanchez is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Most of the great music you hear right here on the Veritas show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at Jamendo.com. and you are listening to the Veritas Show. Anthony F. Sanchez received his bachelor's degree in computer information systems from Western Governors University of Salt Lake City, Utah in 2008. In addition to being a software consultant for the state of California through his own company, Anthony has been employed for 16 years as a software engineer working for 3Com, Intel, Acer, Netscape Communications, and Hewlett-Packard, performing high-level software development, supporting scientific engineering and business intelligence projects. He became interested in UFOs back in 1989. At the time, Area 51 surfaced as a public phenomenon. Since 2000, he has researched the subject matter thoroughly, employing various scientific methods and hands-on approaches, thus compiling over 20 years' worth of UFO-related research data. For the purposes of augmenting his knowledge on human origins, Anthony has also studied in detail ancient Hebrew religious texts such as the Old Testament Bible and Gospels from the Dead Sea Scrolls, such as the Book of Giants and the Book of Enoch. He has also studied famous Sumerian Babylonian translations, such as the Enuma Elish and the Atrahasis, as well as numerous Akkadian Mesopotamian cylinder seals and Akkadian cuneiform inscriptions. Each year, he is a regular visitor to the deserts of the American Southwest, visiting crash sites, conducting interviews, and performing scientific fieldwork. His most recent interviews include the likes of fellow investigative UFO researchers Norio Hayakawa and Jörg Arno. His works represent an unbiased and impartial reporting style, ensuring he uncovers every aspect of every story. And directly from Northern California, Anthony F. Sanchez. Hello, Anthony, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Thank you for having me, Mel. It's my pleasure. And folks, it's not that often that I bump into somebody or some information that I deem so important that I have to bring to the show. This is actually Anthony's very first appearance on the radio. But what you are about to experience is something that you have not heard before. 
I want to let Anthony tell you, give you a little bit of his background. This is somebody who's a professional, an engineer, somebody who is respected in the community. Why don't I let you, Anthony, give us some background of yourself and what prompted you to start looking? And you are basically another fellow truth seeker. Oh, but before I say anything, it was my friend Norio Hayakawa. We were talking on the phone and he basically pointed me in the right direction and said, essentially, if you want to get information that has not been recycled, you have to talk to Anthony Sanchez. And his new book that's coming out very shortly, UFO Highway, is going to keep you on the edge of your seat. Anthony. Sure. Um, I've been a software developer for about the last 20 years, uh, working in the Silicon Valley. I've worked at some of the most high-profile uh, companies in the semiconductor industry, um, hardware manufacturing, um, for you know, for quite some time now, and I guess it was about the same time uh, as I started as a software developer in my professional career. Um, I first heard of Norio Hayakawa and some of the work that he was doing at Area 51, uh, researching all that was happening there at the time. Uh, in addition to some of his earliest works about uh, deep underground military bases, specifically Dulce, um, I was aware of some of the um, correspondence that he had at that time. Uh, with uh, several well-known people uh, in this field. And uh, I took an interest uh, in, in the whole subject matter. I had always been fascinated since the time I was a kid uh, with the whole UFO phenomena. And uh, I never stopped uh, studying uh, this whole, you know, uh, research, this whole field of research, uh, you know, with, with, with respect to, uh, you know, aliens, UFOs, and even the paranormal, uh, but specifically ufology. And um, that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years, aside from uh, helping to raise a family and, uh, you know, work for some, uh, for some companies throughout Silicon Valley. And that's what I'm saying to you folks, that this is not somebody who's pulling this information out of a hat. This is information. And I know you cannot, obviously, for obvious reasons, you cannot reveal your sources, but you can tell us more or less what kind of ranking they had and, and what kind of stature they had in the community and as to why, I, I presume you vetted their identities and, and uh, their positions before you started digging and, and compiling this information, correct? Yeah, I have two primary sources that I work with, and um, it's, an interesting, um, it's an interesting series of events that led up to how I actually met the main source of information, which is the uh, retired USAF colonel. He was with the U.S. Air Force stationed out here at McClellan Air Force Base. And I can't give too much information about him other than the fact that I can tell you that I have vetted him. Um, I actually own my own uh, software development agency, and I carry a uh, California multiple award schedule, which is a special type of license um, uh, that, that lets me uh, do background checks on people. Uh, but but not, not just for the state of California, but for ID background checks for anybody that's going to work for me for any project. And uh, one of the things that I do is um, from time to time is I'll file a standard Form 180. I'll submit to the custodian of military records for a specific individual to determine if they are, in fact, an uh, active reservist or a retired veteran. And um, I'll get the information that... Uh, uh, and this is all pub in the public domain. Anybody can do this. Anybody, any American citizen has the right to do this. Um, 
I'll get the information back from the federal government telling me whether or not this individual was who they say who they are. And in this case, this individual is exactly who he says he is, and he has given me full permission to print his DD-214, which is his uh, discharge papers from the military in the book. And um, so long as it's redacted, you know, obviously certain elements can't be revealed, but uh, there are some interesting things within the DD-214 that detail his work at Dulce, New Mexico, uh, at, a, at a facility that I had never heard of. I had never heard Norio mention this facility, uh, John Lear, I, anyone. I had never heard anyone who has worked on, on the uh, deep underground military base at Dulce mention this, this location, and that's what piqued my interest with this individual. Um, he proved to me that he is who he says he is, and I took it from there, and I have to just trust him that the information that he has given to me uh, is factually verifiable, and I believe that it is. Two questions. When did this happen, and how did you come in contact with this person? So, I, now this happened in January. I interviewed the colonel in January of this year. Prior to that, I was working at a large semiconductor firm. Uh, I can't give the name of the company, but, you know, there, there's a list of companies in my bio that I've worked for that I do mention, and you can probably guess as to which one. But I won't sure. publicly state it because I don't want to get in trouble with this company. When I was working there in 2007, I was um, doing software development uh, in this test validation center, working with a bunch of scientific engineers who were developing various types of integrated circuits for this company. There was a section of that uh, division that had a very, very high turnover rate, and these were the technicians, um, very, very talented people, very, very, you know, uh, smart group of people, but for some whatever reason, and I don't know, I won't go into specifics, there's a lot of high turnover in the technician area as opposed to the long-term engineering corps. One day, this person showed up, and uh, I, was, I was doing uh, computational uh, uh, statistical analysis and uh, writing uh, scripts to help the engineers determine various metrics. It's actually called computational metric analysis. And um, I was working with this one technician on this one, you know, $10 million testing machine uh, from some circuits that had arrived uh, from uh, Israel or whatever. And uh, we got to talking, and he knew that I had a blog and that I, you know, was interested in uh, UFO research. Before I know it, he started telling me some stuff that was really interesting. Uh, but he, but more so, he was asking me questions. He was very, very persistent about what I knew, who I knew. And uh, I was kind of green in this area, you know, other than just following people who had already had lots of information out there on the various topics. Um, I told him that I was, you know, one day planning on writing a book on everything that I had learned. And uh, he was there for a few months. We maybe met, I would say, a, a total of five times. The last time was at this Filipino restaurant where we had lunch. And then that was it. He was gone. I remember coming back in and asking about him and, he was gone. A whole year later, in I'm going to say December of 2008, or no, 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 November of 2008, he called me out of the blue. I forgot I had forgotten his name at that point because you know you only meet someone a few times, and, and at a company like the one that I worked at, you know there were 8,000 people on that campus, so you forget names. It's very easy to trust me. Anyhow, sure. He he reminded me of who he was, and I was like, oh, that's right, in the validation center, the test validation center. So 
this time around, he tells me that he was there working under an assumed identity. He was on the run. He was AWOL from a company where he was working as part of a federal subcontract uh, near Moffett Field over here in the Bay Area in California developing this uh, weapon system. Now, I can't go into specifics about the weapon system uh, because it's, you know, classified. Class, it's classified stuff that's in the interest of, of uh, protecting the country, and I don't want to get in trouble with anybody. Sure. But I can tell you that this was some super, super, super sophisticated stuff that he was telling me about, and he actually wanted to disclose information to me for the purposes of getting it in one of my books. And I hadn't written any books. I, was, I had only mentioned that I had planned on writing a book, and this is way back in 2008. By the way, Anthony, do you have any internet applications open? Because I'm losing you every every few words. Um, uh, no, I don't have any applications open at the moment. Okay, all right, all right. Sorry about that. No problem. <clears throat> so anyhow, um, this person uh, we he now goes by the name Trinity. I can't use his real name. I don't even think the name he that I knew him by at the company was his real name. So. Um, he, he became, uh, you know, an informant for me, some type of an insider as part of the military industrial complex. Time went by and he and I stayed in touch. And then one day out of the blue, he told me that he had an individual who wanted to meet with me. This was a retired U.S. Air Force colonel who was from uh, Northern California and was stationed at McClellan Air Force Base and who had a very, very, very interesting story that he wanted to share with me, something that he wanted to disclose. So I met with this individual first by phone. Uh, they called me by phone. I spoke with him. I got what information I could from him, and I knew that I could trust that this was somebody who was of a serious nature because it was coming from this source of mine, Trinity, I met with this person in, uh, at his house, uh, and all I can say is that it's here in Northern California, and we had three hours of conversation, which resulted in an interview uh, totaling to about 150 pages worth of testimony, all about this classified medical detachment that he was a part of through McClellan that worked on these Type X events, which were essentially... Anything that dealt with, you know, uh, you know, uh, aerial, unidentified aerial phenomena, if there was an accident or a death or something, his medical detachment had a, you know, specific interest in that. And they actually were part of a joint, it was a joint USAF and CIA uh, group. So he had a lot of information to share with me, stuff that I just incomprehensible to my own mind because... I didn't know, I, I've never been in the military and I didn't understand half of the acronyms he was throwing at me and it took a lot of research for me to comprehend, comprehend to ultimately comprehend what I had in my hands. And um, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting tale of events that uh, he wants me to disclose. There's specific reasons why he wants me to disclose it and it's in the book and I can share some of it with you. Yeah, please do. Well, I can tell you that in 1940, there was a discovery event there in Dulce. And there was, um, there was a group called the Murak Expedition. And these men were from the Murak Army Airfield, which is now called Edwards Air Force Base. 
This is before Roswell? This, this was before Roswell. Okay. And these guys were essentially, they would be considered what we would call like a special forces unit today. Um, there was no such thing back then. These guys were handpicked for a specific task. Their job was to be the ground resource for pilots who were looking for a brand new home for the atomic development work that we were going to be conducting there uh, in New Mexico. New Mexico was a prime area at the time uh, to research for a uh, potential uh, area of development because of all of the uh, different types of uh, environments that they had there uh, within the state. They found an underground facility the size of a small city underneath the Mesa Plateau there in Dulce. And what they found in there was very, very interesting. They found artifacts. They found bodies. They found ancient machinery. They found um, they found so many things there. And, and I'm just... I want to share with you everything that I can, but I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous right now. You know, you and I spoke before the interview, and I told you some of the things that have been occurring to me, and I'm wondering uh, about disclosing some of the nature. Of well, as I, as, I said, as I said before the interview, by, by taking the step, it's only going to be for, to your benefit, because once you're in the light and you become public, then less of a chance of something happening to you. And if I may say to the audience that what you are hearing here tonight, what Anthony's going to share with us, has put his life in danger, folks. He has been literally threatened. So if you'd like to take a quick parenthesis to explain what has happened to you and why you feel compelled that this is the only protection that you have to come out with this information, why don't you tell us if you'd like? Yeah, I have a... um I have a colleague of mine whose name is Frank Warren of the UFO Chronicles. He's a very, very talented UFO researcher and well-respected within this uh, whole uh, field. Uh, and uh, I met with him, I guess it was back in, I want to say March. And at that time, um, I had uh, shared with him some of the work that I was doing. And um, he had posted some of the information with regards to the Dulcie interview on the internet, and I guess, you know, <laughs> unless you know about the UFO Chronicles, this is a very, very, very high-profile website. Um, the information gets on the UFO Chronicles, it, you can bet that it's going to be circulated around the world. And it, it, it did indeed propagate, you know, globally. And immediately after that, I started being attacked from all different sides, you know, uh, my character. People didn't even know me. They were attacking my character. They were attacking uh, the interview with the colonel. They were attacking just about everything. About It happens. Yeah. Yeah. And um, before I knew it, I started, <coughs> I started receiving death threats, um, cryptic death threats. I had shared some information that I have with uh, a specific individual who I thought that would be a benefit for me to share this information with. And I got received nothing back from that person, and I uh, was a little bit dismayed at the at the time, because this is a high profile person in the UFO uh, community, the UFO research community. Um, but shortly after that, I started receiving these death threats, and I don't know if there's a connection or not, but I can tell you that I'm a little bit upset by that because. So I, this happened. This happened after you contacted this high profile UFO community person personality. Yes, yes. Uh, immediately after that, about a week after that, I 
I started receiving death threats. Um, I would get these cryptic emails, you know, with like this long list of, uh, you know, jargon, you know, like AFGI129, whatever, at Gmail or at Hotmail. And I was getting them from all of them. And these were fake email addresses, and they were created uh, solely for the purpose of threatening me. Um, I would literally receive emails with, you know, short cryptic message, print the interview, you die kind of thing. And I, and I, I don't, you know, I don't have room in my life for death threats, put it that way. So I, I didn't, but I didn't take it lightly. I'm very concerned about it. And that's one of the reasons why I chose to only share this information with Norio Hayakawa, uh, Frank Warren, and uh, more recently with uh, Scott Ramsey, who I respect uh, immensely as a UFO researcher for the work that he's done on the Aztec UFO crash. So I, I don't share this information with a lot of people. I have not. You're the first person that I have spoken to on this. I will be uh, working with uh, Jerry Pippin shortly, but uh, you know, this is it. That's it. And I, don't, I don't plan on doing too many of these because I'm really, really concerned for my well-being. Um, I have people, I, I have friends that are telling me to talk to as many people as you can for, for, to, for your safety. But I, I, at this point, I, I'm, I'm unclear as how to gauge gauge that. Well, um, it seems that uh, you, you've already taken the step. You've already written the book, and you have intentions of publishing the book. Yeah, so, the book is going to be published. It's already it's already in the processes of being published right now as we speak. So th- this is a, a, I have to say, it's, a, it's an insurance policy yeah. that you are buying for yourself and, and your family. You and I are both family men, mm-hmm. and we understand the risks that we take, but we have to go public in order to protect ourselves. But you were mentioning some of the, the items that were found in the, in the New Mexico area. You mentioned bodies. What type of bodies? Okay, so before I jump into that, let me tell, let me explain something to you. You have to remember okay. this is 1940. There were no, uh, there were no laptops. There were no personal recording devices. There was nothing of the sort back then. So a lot of the times, what they did was is they would designate various soldiers uh, or various people part of a unit or a detachment to record everything that they had found. Uh, for the officers, and so a lot of times the officers themselves would also keep these journals, uh, you know, when they would make these types of discoveries or whatever. So that's what they did. They were told to record everything. So they probably had a team uh, based on the information received to me by the colonel of like half a dozen people who were designated to, in addition to, uh, you know, working as part of the discovery to write down everything. So you have these records, these 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 records that are just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and I actually was privy to some of these. I got to see during the interview with the colonel, I saw photocopies of some of these records. And you could see the different handwritings of the different soldiers. Uh, you could see initials. You could see names. You could see dates and times. It's just amazing. And I have actually seen photos of inside the Dulce facility, something that nobody else has, has ever seen. I've actually seen them. I have a 3D uh, CGI expert right now recreating what I've seen because obviously I was not allowed to keep these photos. They were, they were like Polaroids or old Polaroids of the 1970s. I don't know how he got them. I don't know, you know, was he supposed to take them, but I've seen them. They're, they're amazing. So inside... The Can you describe what, what you saw? And by the way, you probably heard the name Thomas Costello. Yeah, I have bad news about Thomas Costello. Okay, uh, you're gonna tell, do you going to tell us that that was a hoax? That there, there was no such person as a Thomas Costello. That, that, whole, okay. that whole 
story surrounding this Thomas Costello individual was a complete an utter falsehood based on what the colonel has told me. He said, he went through great lengths to try and find who this individual was. And he, believe me, he had resources at his disposal to do so. And there never was a Thomas Costello. There was never a son. There was never a wife. He went to the townships where the, the supposedly there was a um, uh, birth certificates. There was nothing of the sort. This person does not exist. So and I say will, good in the sense, good as in, okay, let's get that out of the way, because many people still believe in this story. Yeah, no, that, that, that whole story is a, is a complete falsity. It, that, that, does not, that does not exist. Okay. That, that individual does not exist. But there is definitely something behind this whole Dulcie story. In the reports that were prepared by the soldiers, they said that they had found uh, this uh, uninhabited uh, cavernous area beneath the... Um, beneath the mesa there. So there were, there were different levels there. It's not like everybody thinks that they have imagined it based on these other stories that they have read today. Uh, he says that there was this heavy utilization of technology, but it was integrated with the natural elements of the, of the caverns. And that they found... Uh, they found machinery in there. They found... They found corpses, bodies. They found, uh, they found an ancient, uh, uh, an alien, high, uh, an alien Acadian-like cuneiform type script, a writing system that was all over the place throughout there, um, a, a writing system which they were eventually able to translate, which gave them a unique insight to everything that they were finding inside of this place. Um, I can tell you this. I can tell you that there was a some type of a hostile uh, event that had occurred between uh, Native American peoples and inhabitants. At this point, I want to call them inhabitants because I don't just want to jump right into what it is, if you can understand where I'm coming from. Sure. I don't want to just throw it out there. Apparently, there were inhabitants there. and. These inhabitants lived on the lower levels. For whatever reason, they had abandoned these upper levels, but they found bodies of these inhabitants next to bodies of Native American people that had been fighting them. They found spent and unspent ammunition. They found Colt revolvers. They found Winchester repeater rifles in perfect usable condition just sitting there, uh, covered in dust and webs and whatnot. So something had happened there. Um... There's nothing written about what that event was, but there was a hostility. Uh, there were there was a hostility, a hostile type of hostile action that had occurred there. And this is still the 1940s. This is in the 1940s when this was discovered. Okay. So, uh, in the reports by the soldier, they the soldiers the, they had written that there appeared to be ancient artifacts in, interspersed uh, among modern looking but unfamiliar machines. Some walls were covered with... Now, remember, this is the terminology from the 1940s. They said that there were walls covered with radar-like screens, and there also appeared to be individual personnel stations uh, fitted with some type of crypt cryptography machines or what appeared to be electric typewriters. Um, these guys didn't have a clue what they were looking at. Some of the soldiers weren't sure what any of it was or what it was used for. One soldier had written that 
everything he wrote, everything we're finding is highly sophisticated in design, way beyond our latest military electronic equipment. It looks to be German, possibly. Remember, at that time, Germany was like uh, 20 to 25 years ahead of all other westernized countries in the technology that they were producing, even yes. even uh, putting out there commercially um, for you know for for sale. So. One of the commanding officers, or the commanding officer there had had written down that in each room there appeared to be devices similar to electronic television sets. And he said, maybe, he goes, maybe German in appearance. You know, again, back to this German, uh, they kept saying everything German because they were the, the, they were the cutting edge developers of everything at the time that had to do with electronics. Right. But he said that these electronic television sets were immense in size and that they were very flat, covering most every wall near any of the equipment or electronic machines. If there was some type of, an, of a large piece of an equipment, or if there was some type of an electronic machine, there was going to be one of these TV screens, these electronic television sets there. Um, at first, he said they thought that there were windows, and, but they... Uh, they could see that these things somehow offered a view or a screen of uh, the many stations that were positioned in front of them, you know, like the workstations or something. Um, also in the reports, they stated that they found thick black cables with lighted wires inside. Um, they appeared to be glass-like, but they were physically malleable without causing any damage, even when you twisted them or bended them. Um, and extruding from the ends of the wires, they were like bundles of exposed and they kept referring to them as glass wires with lighted ends. And do you, do you, let me just stop you for a second. Do you realize that what you're saying, I mean, flat screen TVs, you're probably referring to fiber optics. You know, what uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Philip J. Corso had said, that a lot of this technology has, was passed to the private corporations and pretending that we invented them. Is there a connection here? Absolutely. When I sat down with the colonel and I spoke with him uh, about all of this and I started to question him about now he was telling me, you know, get this, he was telling me that they had these security access panels in there that were developed by IBM. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> by IBM. So when I asked him about uh, some of the advanced features that he had mentioned as part of that uh, uh, this um, security access panel, he said to me, he says, have you ever heard of Phil Corso? And I said to him, Philip J. Corso, Lieutenant Corso? I said, of course I have. I read his book. Well, it was Corso, and he told me, that was in charge of the extraction of technologies for the purposes of reverse engineering from all of the recovered ships at the crash sites. From all so the, the colonel is validating this. Absolutely. He absolutely validates it. And I, gotta, I have a bunch of stuff for you to from He says... He says all the, t- the he says that, that the Corso was indeed in charge of the extraction of the technologies uh, for purposes of reverse engineering of all the recovered ships at the crash sites from the artifacts that were recovered from the inhabitants. Okay, I'm just going to throw it out there. The inhabitants are great, and I'm just going to say that, but we'll talk about that later. Um, the, 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 during the Murak expedition, when I mentioned to you that these gentlemen in the 1940s, these soldiers, they found all this stuff. They found fiber optics, integrated circuits, laser technology, and the jump directly into Gen 2 night vision, allowing us to discard all of the earlier and antiquated image intensifier type technologies that we had made on our own. People argue over these claims about the night vision. They're like, oh, night vision was already being developed. I don't think so. Corso was right. Gen, Gen 2 night vision, specifically SuperGen, what was what resulted from what we learned through the grace. That's what the colonel is telling me. So he says, don't believe, sir, for a second that his work did not involve what we could get through 
you know, uh, uh, see, I'm about to jump into something I shouldn't talk about, but he said that uh, not to believe for a second that his work was not what he claimed it to be. Um, there was a, an accord with the Greys uh, wherein we bartered with them uh, in exchange for advanced technologies. We provided them with natural resources that they had no ability to attain. Um, I can get into that, but, you know, that's described, that's, that's talked about heavily in the book. But, um, you know, uh, the crash sites, one of the interesting things that I'm going to talk about in the book is the crash sites. Um, uh, you know, you have Aztec, you have Roswell, you have, but the most important one of all of them was San Antonio, New Mexico. I don't know if you know about this, but that was the first incident where the technology from Project Diana, where we were developing this uh, microwave-based radar system, that's when we discovered that it had uh, an, a, 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 a uh, this um, effect on their technology uh, of their their ships, their their saucers. It, it took them down. It, it, you know, you know how everyone says it, it was lightning or some type of a lightning storm that took down the ship at Roswell. It was nothing of the sort. It was the technology that was derived through Project Diana, this microwave-based radar system, uh, which wreaked havoc on their ships. And, and this technology came from them. Is that how we were able to discover it? Yes, yes, yes. So, well, no, not Project Diana. That was something that we were developing independently on our own. Okay. And what, what, what resulted of that was that we, we've already, we, we, are, we already knew about them at this point. You've got to think about when the, a lot of, you got to think about when these crashes occurred. They happened after the Murak expedition had already discovered the underground facility there at the Mesa. Did the colonel confirm that this 1940, is this when we first realized or, or discovered the, the existence or the presence of the greys on planet Earth? Yes, yes, absolutely. And it, it was highly classified. Um, people started killing themselves. Um, grown men with solid constitutions who were high-level government, government officials. This is why uh, Secretary Forrestal killed himself. Yes, yeah, he wasn't. He didn't. He didn't fall out of this, the the uh, that window and the. Uh, pushed. Yeah. No. Well, yeah. I think he pushed himself based on what their colonel told me. Um, there was a lot of people that uh, just couldn't handle this news because they couldn't uh, quantify the information against what they had already. Oh, I see. So you 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 you're, you're not you're you're not saying that they they were suicided. They actually committed suicide because they couldn't take it. Imagine you have to think about Forrestal, who who grew up his entire life uh, in this strict uh, Catholic, underneath this strict Catholic doctrine. He had strong Catholic beliefs. Yes. How can he? Uh, how is he going to sit there and intellectualize the fact that every major religious event that has ever occurred on this planet was actually tied back to this uh, race of beings that had, that's been in existence for 200,000 years and been stuck here for that time. And been, His foundations were shattered. Absolutely, absolutely. And there were a lot of people, that, and the book, I cover a lot of this in the book because the, the colonel has given me so much information on the people that just couldn't deal with it. Famous people. People you know quite well. Right. So instead of, because uh, a lot of us probably thought, thought they were suicided to prevent them from talking, but now what you're mentioning of a for, forest style, uh, growing up a religious man, all of a sudden his reality changed and the paradigm completely shattered his, his foundations. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, 
Project Diana, uh, if we can get back to that a bit. Uh, sure. Project Diana was, uh, you know, lightning, as many people speculate, had nothing to do with the crash ships recovered all over New Mexico at that time. The inhabitants chose to fly during storms to remain concealed from our radar systems, and we knew that. Uh, this is something that the colonel was telling me. Uh, there was some type of an accord. You know, one of the things you have to understand is that... Uh, the colonel says that this is a small, dying society of these um, uh, these greys that they, they, they have, through millennia, uh, genetically modified their own DNA to as a life-sustaining effort. And what they've done is essentially damaged their own DNA. And that's why um, you have... Um, a series of these cattle mutilations that occur all over uh, the Four Corners area of New Mexico up into Colorado. Um, but prior to that, there was a um, series of events which involved uh, human mutilations. And Before you go to the human mutilation yeah. part, what caused the, the cattle mutilation? Well, the cattle mutilations was based on I can tell you that the, the majority of the catamutilations are not done by the greys. They're done by, they're actually done by uh, humans, by the uh, the military that operates there uh, within new, the new confines of New Mexico, specifically out of the Delphi facilities. They actually leverage and facilitate their work uh, through the use of great technology. It's part of uh, an accord that has been established. Um, Initially, it was to work on specifically just the bovine, just the cattle, just the uh, biotoxins, testing biotoxins, and uh, on you know specific cattle that they would designate ahead of time, uh, they would mark them with these um, uh, with some type of uh, chemo, you know, uh, chemicals. Uh, I forget what the colonel tells me, but it's in the book. Uh, it's in the interview. Uh, this chemiluminescence type of uh, substance that would allow them to be, you, you could see them f f at night. Uh, it would make them fluorescent under a specific light, uh, mm. specific type of light. Then they, what they would do is, is they would use these gray ships to abduct them. Um, they would then test their, they, they would test biotoxins on them, ricin, anthrax, you name it, any type of, uh, any type of uh, biochemical agent living or not, whether it was a bacteria or, or some other type of strain that uh, they would uh, potentially plan to use for military purposes, chemical warfare. What they would do is they would inject the cattle, they would observe the cattle. As soon as the cattle was dead, they would extract all of its vital organs. Uh, they would... Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, extract all of its blood, uh, gland, uh, you know, um, uh, its lymph nodes, any type of glandular structures, and then they would leave it there. I mean, they would uh, use advanced laser type uh, technologies that was uh, divide, uh, that was developed by the Greys, and um, and sometimes they were sloppy and they would leave things there. They they would leave things behind because the majority of the stuff happened in the middle of the night, and specifically when there was no moonlight is what the colonel said. So some say, some say that these cattle mutilations were done to measure the level of radiation in the New Mexico area, but that's only part of the story, isn't it? It's part of the story, and that's actually partly true. Uh, when I conducted my own research based on what the colonel told me, uh, I found that a lot of the um, cattle mutilations that were taking place over in Leandro Canyon, uh, which is over, which is um, to the 
southwest of Dulcie, right where the project um, gas buggy occurred, uh, you know, you have cattle there where they were indeed testing them for some of the uh, fallout levels, you know, based on what, you know, the fallout levels and how it affects, because this is cattle that would eventually be eaten by humans. Right. So, you know, that's why they were doing those tests. They were, in fact, doing those tests. That wasn't a cover-up or anything. But um, So what happened afterwards? Well, uh, the colonel says that uh, in about 1990, when they finished the construction of TAD-3, which was the underground facility there in Leandro Canyon, that there was um, a new malevolent force that had uh, somehow... Uh, infiltrate, infiltrated the um, the Dulcie facility. Uh, this is a group of uh, people that were uh, they were uh, military officers. Um, but let me stop you for a second. You, you were mentioning human mutilation. I don't want to skip that. In the 1950s. Yeah. So in the 1950s, there was actually so there's a, there was a, there's a group that operates out of Dulcie called DSD3. This is the Dulcie Security Division, and the three indicates the number of the branches that operate there. Um, and which like, are which Marines, are the, Navy? Uh, no, it's the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines fall, uh, fall under the umbrella of, of the Marines. Okay. So um, DSD-3... Is, of the Marines uh, or the Navy? No, the Marines fall under the umbrella of the Navy. Right, the Navy, okay. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, DSD-3 simply stands for Dulce Security Division, with the numeral 3 indicating, uh, indicating the three branches of the military assigned to the special security unit that it is. So you have the Air Force, the Army, and the Navy. It's so Bill Cooper, Bill Cooper was correct when he said that the Navy oversees all this stuff. Um, part, partially right. Uh, DS-3 represents an elite group of highly trained soldiers and military specialists who operate both the installation security and the administration. And, and, and again, there are Marines, but they fall under the Navy proxy. You see, the Marines right. are a separate branch within the Department of the Navy. So even though they remain fully separate with their own distinct chain of command, the Secretary of the Navy still oversees both the Navy and the Marines, specifically um, at, well, at the highest level, and that actually trickles down to DSD-3. So okay. um, what's interesting about that uh, is that DSD-3 is kind of like the uh, mini Pentagon. Uh, the reach and the influence in the global intelligence community is very, very powerful. And... Uh, Although DS3 places its focus solely on Dulcie, it's more than just a security force because they're held with the responsibility of maintaining the world's biggest secret, which is Dulcie. That is the world's biggest secret. World's biggest secret. So it's a no surprise that they sponsor you know, various intelligence types of operations, domestic and global, to suppress all and any information about the Dulcie Surveyor uh, facility. Uh, and, and they do also regularly espouse disinformation through uh, people that would take uh, stories like the Costello story, and, and you know, which is just an embellishment off of the Paul Benowitz and Myrna Hansen real stories, things that really occurred there. So that that's uh, did the colonel ever tell you that uh, some of this technology was transferred to the Nazis in the 40s? I don't think so. I don't think so. Based on what the colonel has told me, the Greys there at Dulcie never had any interaction with any humans other than the Americans when they first encountered them there. Other than okay. under other than the American Indians who they fought with and the and of uh, you know the evidence you know they obviously collected and found and documented heavily. I mean, they have, when you read the book, I mean, I detail that entire episode of everything that they found. 
everything that they found there. The Hikaria Indians in the area, and I know Norio has investigated this. Yeah. They talk about this? Do they talk about this uh, interaction with the Greys? Uh, you know, it's interesting, but the Hikaria, you know, uh, they don't, They don't talk uh, uh, much about it, you know. And uh, who I think it was Dennis Balthaser who once said that uh, he spoke with the uh, an elder from the Hickory Apache Nation, and um, you know he said, "God, you know, you guys have so much information with regards to uh, you know the Mesa, the Plateau, the, the, this whole area, uh, UFOs, and uh, you know so, you know sightings of these mass UFOs over the." Uh, over the place, uh, the plateau, and, and he asked him, well, you know, why, why don't you, with all your knowledge, why don't you come forward and you tell people about this? And then, and then this elder that Dennis was talking to, he told him, he says, nobody asked. Hmm. Nobody asked. Nobody asked. Have you asked? No, nobody asked. Nobody asked him. Well, I, I tell you what, I'm actually going down to, uh, tomorrow evening to Dulce. I'm going to be meeting with Norio, and I will be asking. <laughs> yeah, you're that you're a kind of guy. Yeah, I will be asking. So that's uh, something that's um, very interesting. You know, th th this is something that uh, it's always interested me, and um, you'll be surprised to know that many of the Hickory people have actually found one of the entrances there to um, Dulcie, but through a mutual understanding with DSP3, they never talk about it openly. They don't. Of course, there must be, I'm pretty sure the elders must know, they have had some common communication, which they have disseminated throughout their tribes to prevent them from talking to the public. I mean, it's just, I would presume that's obvious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, you cannot blame them for, for not talking about much about anything. Getting messages across through through telling a story or recalling an event, you know, traditional or, per, uh, or personal, you know, it's done in a different type of manner in, in, in great contrast to, you know, to outsiders who, who, you know, whose frame of mind is to get to the point right now type of attitude. You know, right. if, you do, if you don't show respect to the Hickorya, uh, the people of the Hickorya Apache Nation, you know, you won't get any respect in return. You have to learn to communicate in a civil and respectful manner before the people open up to you. And that's something I learned through the colonel. I've never, I have never spoken to a Hickorya Apache nation, in, uh, an individual from the Hickory Apache Nation. This is information that has been conveyed to me by the colonel, and he tells me outright, you know, those who learn how to show respect, you know, uh, the great respect for those elders who do the storytelling, they learn a great amount of knowledge, and those are the individuals that succeed in researching Dulce. Treat them the way they want to be treated, with respect. Absolutely. And what happened afterwards? We were staying in the 1950s with the human mutilation and the augmentation of DSD-3. What happened after So um, there was a human mutilation that took place. Uh, oh, so the reason why it took place was because DS3 was very small at that time. And um, their, their numbers were quite small, and through this accord that they had, they knew that uh, they could take advantage of um, there being such small numbers. So um, they had agreed. Now, I don't want to go into it too much, but they had agreed to, to not perform any flying in that area. Any that what? Flying? You said flying? Fly, flying of their craft in that area. Right. Okay. And um, we didn't know this, but there, there was this malevolent uh, aspect to this, um, how can I put it, this biogenetic research that they, they told us that they performed 
for these life-sustaining purposes. And um, what happened was is that I guess they had they I guess they had uh, omitted that information. So they they took advantage of the small numbers there, and um, they started uh, flying around and uh, conducting these uh, human mutilations, and one in particular, and it really sent off a hellfire storm. And um, anyway, I really don't want to get into it too much because it's kind of gruesome, and I don't know if it's it's if it's appropriate. Absolutely, for the radio. no. Yeah, uh, but, yeah, but it's yeah, in yeah, the book. Our our audience, uh, our audience, Anthony is very mature, and we can take it. It's the truth. We, if we're going to get the truth, we need the whole truth. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, you know, um, yeah, there definitely was a, a human mutilation that had occurred there, and it was uh, it was pretty pretty gruesome. And what happened was is uh, there was this broker deal that allowed cattle, right, which were yeah. readily found in remote areas to the region, to be the answer for them. Um, they had uh, after ha- having conducted this. Uh, human mutilation that was widely you know, recorded uh, within the military, you know, they made it clear to them no more human abductions and mutilations were ever to occur again, period. Uh, and they supposedly agreed to that. Um, so anyhow, um, they broke that accord. They, they broke that accord. And um, there, was, um, there was an incident that uh, caused uh, some friction. Was there somebody from the military who got abducted and mutilated? Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, and um, it, it wasn't a good. It wasn't a. Um, it wasn't a. It was. It wasn't. How can I put it this way? It was really, really gruesome, and I, and I don't. I don't want to be. I don't want to be one of those um, people that is uh, classified as the dark side of ufology, trying to get these uh, messages out there that are really, really negative. Uh, you know, uh, I've heard that claim before, and, and it's been thrown at me a lot. And I, I don't want to be part of that, but um, if, if okay, so in the fifties, uh, they they started to resume abducting humans again. And uh, but something went terribly wrong. First, there was this uh, sergeant who was stationed at White Sands, and this is uh, this is what the colonel tells me. There was a sergeant that was stationed at White Sands, and this was about I think it was in '56 who was found dead. His body had been mutilated in such a manner that DSD-3 knew that he had to have been the graves because of you know the evidence. Um, there was also an eyewitness, a major, who had witnessed the abduction uh, by a disc-shaped object. And this is a true story, by the way. This is all real. And this is what bothers me the most, that something like this could occur. Um, this and, is the colonel narrating this to you. This is the colonel telling me about this. You know, this was yeah. all came about. He says that there was it was some three days before the bodily the body was finally found there, and recovered for forensic examination. And he says that the sergeants, and I warn you, this is gruesome. But he says the sergeants. Go ahead. Gen- go ahead. He says that the sergeant's uh, genital area had been removed, uh, the eyes had been excised, and the rectum was completely cored out. All of this done with surgical precision using laser technology. After that occurred... It, it make, hold on, let me stop you. It makes you wonder if he was alive or dead when they performed this gruesome act. I don't, I, I don't even want to you know, think about that possibility. Um, 
the colonel says that it took about a month, but uh, DSD three. That's when DS three D three increased its ranks to about seventy personnel. I think before that they were only about twenty or something. They formed a tactical squad. They filled it with no nonsense soldiers, and they infiltrated the level where the Greys worked at beneath the mesa. And there was a fight that uh, occurred. This is uh, what year? What year? Uh, oh, this is in fifty six when the um, this is it might have been early fifty seven or fifty six right after the uh that event okay so there was a fight that occurred there uh and that tactical team that dsc3 tactical team uh they they killed several hundred of the grays which was a devastating blow to them because their population had already been down but uh, anthony were they were they working together the, the the united states military and the grays in that facility Absolutely. By the 1950s, they were already working together. As a matter of fact, in the 1940s, they were already working together. By the okay. mid, to, by the mid, by the mid 1940s, they had already struck up their initial accord. By the, by the early 1950s, they were working together. But it was a very, very tenuous relationship between the Greys and the U.S. military personnel there. So, um, in 1956, when they had this whole incident uh, surrounding this sergeant. Uh, this, mutilated, this mutilated sergeant, um, uh, DSD-3, the tactical team, actually found a dozen bodies uh, there and tables in a lab that had been unknown to anyone at the facility. Uh, human bodies? The, hu hu human, human bodies? They, they okay. were all recent abductions. They were all humans. Unfortunately, no one was alive. Um, okay. To the dismay of everyone, uh, the colonel said that several of them were just children. There was, a, there was one man and the rest of them were young women. And at that time, in 56, 57, di diplomacy essentially was completely thrown out the window. Um, there was nothing, only uh, dead silence with no activity of any kind from the inhabitants after the fighting and during the year that followed. Uh, and then this is the, this, this is the, uh, the critical, most critical point. Uh, someone, some unknown person with high authority managed to resume talks with the inhabitants, the Greys and stri strike up an accord that would allow them to work with DSD-3 teams to capture mammals for their experiments, lesser mammals. So the broker deal allowed for cattle, which were readily found there in the areas. Mm -hmm. That was the answer. No more human abductions or mutilations were, would occur again. How were they communicating with the greys? Ooh, that's interesting. You're going to want to hear this. Okay, so... Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We are also discussing the show at the Manticore Forum with members around the world. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Richard C. Hoagland, and you are listening to Veritas. 